Hi, this is Erica Potter. And this is Hunter Willis. And this is Hot Girl Briefing. Hey, Erica. Hey, Hunter. So first, a little preface. Sorry that we were not in the feed last week. Last week, insane week. Erica and I, this summer, Gemini Hot Girl summer, a little crazy, a little crazy. Just moving around, you know, crazy work schedule, crazy research schedule. So we do apologize for that one, y'all. But like we said, we are back now, back in the feed this week. So Erica, what are we going to be talking about this week? We are talking about Shinzo Abe. And you guys may have heard about him because he was in the news a lot in early July. And that is because he was assassinated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of Japan's former prime ministers, extremely influential throughout the entire global system. Honestly, it was a shock. Erica and I, I remember we were texting each other the morning of like when we both found out just like craziness, like just like we were not expecting this at all. I mean, I don't think that the rest of the world was either, but just one of those things of where extremely unexpected, especially in Japan, because we just got, you know, we had just had our gun control episode talking about how Japan was so good with gun control and where there were really like no gun deaths in Japan. So the fact that, you know, a Japanese prime minister was shot to death, that's, it's just something that was extremely unexpected. So. Yes. Very high profile leader, very, a very shocking assassination. Cause exact, I think that's what added to the shock factor. Like everyone, if you heard assassination in the United States, it would kind of be like, Oh, there the United States goes again. Like, being yeah, crazy. Like JFK, Abraham Lincoln, you know, you would think of those things, but or those events. Yeah, but you in really Japan, Japan, unheard no. of. Mm-mm. Absolutely. But, not. anyways, let's get into this episode. So, for our first source, it is from BBC, and they just talk about the event itself. This article came out right at the day of the assassination, I believe, July 8th. So Japan's former prime minister was shot at twice while giving a speech on a street in the city of Nara on the morning of July 8th. So right at the scene of the crime, the security officials tackled the gunman and the suspect is now in police custody. And the police have named a suspect as Tetsuya Yamagami, who was 41 years old and admitted to shooting Abe with a homemade gun. I don't even know how you make homemade guns. Um, but I guess in a country with crazy gun control laws, what you got to do if you want one. Mm-hmm. And the suspect had said he had a grudge against a quote, specific organization. Mm-hmm. So when police ultimately searched his home, they confiscated several other handmade weapons that were similar to those that were used in the attack as well. There were also explosives that were found in the suspect's house. And so police, they were advising residents to evacuate the area. They really wanted to create this, like a lockdown on scene. So it was just one of those things where it was extremely unexpected. And police were really, they were really shocked about it. And they really wanted to secure this location. Because I mean, who else, what else was going to be in there? They were finding homemade guns, explosives. All of it was just insane. So Yamagami had told officers that he had a grudge against a specific group that he believed that Abe was connected to. And so police, they reported that they were investigating why the former prime minister was targeted out of all the other people of that group. So normally when you talk about assassinations, it usually is one of those things that it is like 
poor shock value. Same thing with terrorism, where the higher target you go or the higher casualty count that you have, usually the more media presence you have, and then the more spread out your message goes. So that's why a lot of times, especially with terrorism, you'll see a lot of tactics just saying, just ignore them because otherwise they will keep on going and doing things that will work. So if you keep on having these horrible terrorist events that are targeting mass casualty events, they're going to keep on getting reported. And then that message is just going to keep on getting out there. So at that point, it's just a confirmation loop. And so that is kind of one of those things of where that could be a reasoning here, but we're still unsure. So they were asked by a member of the Japanese media as to whether the gunman's intention was to kill Abe. And then the police said that only Mr. Yamagami admitted to the shooting, the former prime minister. Yeah. So they didn't like outright say that his intention was to kill. Although I have to imagine if you have explosives in your house, if you have other handmaids, like you go through all the trouble to hand make weapons to take mm-hmm. it to a political campaign. And it's like the prime minister wasn't even campaigning on behalf of himself. He was campaigning on behalf of another person. Yeah. And so you go through all this effort. I have to imagine there's sinister and malicious intentions behind your actions like what are you just gonna maim this prime minister i mean obviously like you said hunter for shock value any type of shooting even if it didn't result in his death would Mm -hmm. be a huge sensation but the japan's current prime minister fumio kishida condemned the attack saying it is barbaric and this is a quote saying it is quote barbaric malicious and it cannot be tolerated and that this attack was quote an attack of an act of brutality that happened during the elections, the very foundation of our democracy, and is absolutely unforgivable unquote. Because this all happened literally right before elections mm-hmm. for that region that Abe was speaking in on behalf of someone campaigning for that region. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so with that, Mr. Kashida, he was saying all of that before Abe's death was even confirmed too. So ultimately, Shinzo Abe suffered two bullet wounds to his neck during the attack and damage to his heart. It was reported that he was conscious and responsive minutes after his attack, but his condition deteriorated. Just some of the video sourcing that Erica and I saw as well, Shinzo Abe was immediately rushed over to the hospital. He was put on a helicopter, taken there. So this was all very quickly evolving. Yeah, and... Like we said earlier, he was giving a speech as part of a campaign for his former party, the Liberal Democratic Party, as upper house elections in Japan were due to take place later that week. So he was giving a speech for the political candidate Kei Sato, a member, a current member of the upper house running for re-election in Nara. So Mm -hmm. Abe's just out here doing a favor for a friend and he gets targeted by this rogue gunman in Japan Mm -hmm. during election season. Like it can't get any more sensational or... I don't want to say, I always want to say iconic, but that's not the word I'm thinking of. Like, that's just like peak moment. Like if you're going to strike, like that is, it was so much is going on. It's so chaotic. The moment was ripe for like a media frenzy to come out. Yes. Of it. I think that that's kind of where you were going with it. It's just, yeah. I mean, at that point, because everything is just so heightened, it's so close to elections. Like, of course, this is going to be front page everywhere, which like I was saying earlier, if you're committing these heinous acts, generally it's those types of moments that tend to be seen as the most pivotal for whether it's individuals, organizations that are really targeting officials and trying to get their message out there like that, whether it's a terrorist organization or a rogue gunman trying to do these things. So psychologically, 
you know, I can't relate at all, but that's kind of what the literature and the studies say about it. But just going into a little bit more about Shinzo Abe. So Abe was Japan's longest serving prime minister. He held office in 2006 for a year and then again from 2012 to 2020 before he stepped down citing health reasons. So during his time, he pushed a lot more assertive policies on defense and foreign policy. He sought to amend Japan's pacifist post-war constitution. He really wanted to get a little bit more into that of you know, defending Japan themselves instead of only having to rely on the U.S. I think that this was also exemplified in his foreign policy, especially during the more retreating and withdrawn years of the U.S. during Donald Trump's administration, where the U.S. did withdraw. You know, they were trying to step out of the foreign policy scene as much as it had been before under the Obama administration and the Bush administration. So you're seeing that Shinzo Abe really stepped up and really was kind of trying to confront these things in foreign policy that were going on during the time and really pushing to have Japan be more independent. So he also pushed for economic policies specifically that were known as Abenomics, and it was built on monetary easing, fiscal stimulus, and structural reform. So as we had talked about a bit in our country analysis episode on Japan, Japan does have an economy that is extremely large. However, with a rapidly aging population, this constitutes a lot of different issues for Japan. So it's one of those things of where this was the prime minister's goal as he really wanted to help restructure Japan to be able to be resilient to these changes. And so he was ultimately succeeded by his close party ally, Yoshihida Suga, who was later replaced by Fumio Kishida. Like Hunter said, Shinzo Abe has done a lot during his tenure, longest serving prime minister, gonna get some things accomplished. And for this episode, we did some sources. And I think the way that people do their, and this isn't just specific to Shinzo Abe, but the way that leaders run their countries, it's always taken a certain way. So for this, we have some commentary from an author who interacted with Shinzo Abe during his time. It's very, you know, high level in that area for the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So this next source is actually going to be a commentary discussing the legacy of Shinzo Abe. So Mm -hmm. going to start his legacy, well, while not without controversy, as the author Matthew Goodman says, includes a broad range of accomplishments. Hunter just went into a long spiel. I don't want to say spiel. It sounds (laughs) bad, but like Hunter just went on a long tangent. So I'm not going to do a whole thing like that. But again, this source is mostly about his legacy. So He Mm -hmm. focused on strengthening Japan's defense, reinvigorating its diplomacy to making Japan a more open and accessible country, and the economic policy to update and uphold global economic rules. And so this commentary starts off with saying that for more than two decades since the bubble economy of Japan in the late of the late 80s burst, Japan had faced slow growth and three powerful economic headwinds, deflation, debt, and demographics, as in the aging and declining population, which I'm sure we're all aware is a huge issue that Japan has to contend with, which we should do an episode about that because it is a very prevalent problem Mm -hmm. for Japan. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing in China too, where like the population is really just like aging out. It's just a big triangle. So it's, it's becoming a thing in a lot more developed nations, which I think we've touched on a little bit before, but especially in this episode, it really is central to Shinzo Abe's legacy because this is one of the biggest things that he was up against. Yeah. So to combat this, 
well, all these issues, Shinzo Abe proposed a three-pronged economic strategy dubbed the Abenomics by pundits, which reminds me, we have our own version of the United States, Reaganomics. So I think it's kind of fun. Japan had that too, but it featured aggressive monetary easing, flexible fiscal policy to bolster growth while containing debt and deregulation along with other structural reforms. So the commentator discussing the strategy, he actually said stated that it largely failed in implementation. So Abe's pick as central bank governor Haruhiko Kuroda injected the monetary stimulus and continues to do so even as the yen plummets and other central banks raise interest rates. But the other two strategies of Abenomics failed to begin and Japan's economy still suffers from tepid growth, deflationary pressure, and structural inefficiencies. So, so another thing that Goodman really touches on is Abe's efforts in the international economic realm and that they have been super impactful. So he talks about that Abe basically immediately returned to Washington and he made a giant speech there. And it was actually at the Center for Strategic and International Studies where, you know, Goodman is writing this from. So it's a little ironic, but it's pretty cool in that way too, of where he was talking about how Japan is back. And we see that coming from Barack Obama's pivot to Asia. You're seeing that that's a giant thing happening at this point in 2013 the second term of Obama, he was really moving towards Asia, away from the Middle East. And you're seeing that Japan at that point was a giant ally of the U.S. And at this point, it was something that the U.S. could really utilize and capitalize on. And so it almost empowered Japan, too, to be like, hey, like now we can be like a main stage ally. It's not just going to be, oh, cool, you know, we have France and we have Germany over here because you're used to dealing with stuff towards the Middle East. No, now you're dealing with stuff in, China, in Asia, like China. So Japan really does become one of those main center stage allies at this point. And so Goodman goes in, he talks about officials were negotiating the terms of Japan's entry into the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the comprehensive and high standard trade agreement, which ultimately was what the U.S. was negotiating in as well with, other, with 10 other Asia Pacific partners, but ultimately the U.S. did not go there. But it was one of those things of where Japan being engaged in this, it kind of rubbed China the wrong way. And so it really made a lot of waves around there of where China was like, hey, should we also be in this? Should we not be in this? Because obviously China and Japan have a giant contentious relationship with each other. So it was one of those things of where it's like, okay, well, Shinzo Abe, Shinzo Abe, you know, kind of brand new on the scene. He was there for a year, but, you know, now he's back. So now you also have Xi Jinping, who was new on the scene in 2013, too. And it was one of those things of where it was a really big kind of like event going on of where Japan was there, China was there, the U.S. was there still at that point because the U.S. had not pulled out of it yet. And so it was just one of those things where it was really interesting to see this all taking place in Asia. And it was a really new timing in the world in the international system of where Asia really was becoming the main stage. Yeah, and kickstarting that Trans-Pacific Partnership, Goodman goes on to say that Abe played a critical role in salvaging the agreement after Donald Trump, in one of his first acts as president, pulled the United States out of that agreement in 
early 2017. So mm-hmm. <laughs> according to Goodman, I know it's just like, which I mean, like, you know, I, like presidents, they, they, <laughs> have a, they have a habit of doing that, but just like something this big and that was such a big iconic deal between all of these countries and within the region. And then the first thing you're like, nah, I'm doing it. Same thing with kind of like the Paris Accords where it was like, yeah, we're not going to be doing that. But Donald Trump had to wait because legally he couldn't pull the U.S. out until, you know, a certain amount of time had passed. But with this, there was none of that. So Donald Trump was like, yo, we're out of 3,000. We are, we're gone. We're out of here. Donald Trump and existing trade agreements were like, no bueno. They were just, like he went after NAFTA and (laughs) just. I mean, yeah, literally USMCA. Yeah, literally anything. He's like, nope, I'm going to do this, do it my way, my way. My way, my way or the highway. Pretty much. So Shinzo Abe basically saved the agreement because the United States is a key player and you know they're top dogs. So mm-hmm. it's yeah. when when the United States leaves a trade agreement, it's kind of like, uh-oh, where mm-hmm. do we go from here? But as Goodman states, Abe rallied the other members of the Trans-Pacific Partnership TPP. And won their support to modify it to what is known as the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, CPTPP, a lot of P's in there, Mm -hmm. and it pretty much kept the previous agreement intact and left the door for the United States to kind of return for their eventual return. So sorry to just like jump in again, Erica, but like this just like, you know, Goodman's talking about all of this of Shinzo Abe's legacy, and this really was one of like the founding moments of where Shinzo Abe really came out as a world player, and he was like, hey, I don't care if the U.S. leaves. I'm still staying here, and I'm still going to get this done. It's going to get done. I don't care. I'm going to lead it at this point. I will keep this thing together. This is good for my country. I don't care if the U.S. leaves. I really don't. I don't, I don't care what Donald Trump does. I'm still going to do it. And I will lead this for all the rest of us. So this is really where Shinzo Abe came out. And like, he really was kicking. I mean, he really was like, new, he wasn't new on the scene at this point, but it was just one of those like iconic moments that really propelled him up into being seen as a true leader, not just a government official. Yeah. And they were nice enough to literally leave the door open for the United States, because I feel like mm-hmm. in a lot of other instances, especially how it might've been handled by our lovely president, Donald Trump, pulling out of that agreement. Very gracefully. Yeah, very (laughs) gracefully. It would have made 100% complete sense had they been like, all right, well, you're leaving us. We saved it anyways, but you're not welcome back. But they're like, like, you know what? We're still gonna- Go away. He was, Abe was a graceful winner. He's like, I will, I saved it and I will allow you to come back if you should so want to, which is so- nice of him a to very, do that like, class act with that one honestly. yes because i mean like that just shows that like shinzo abe really did value like the u.s partnership but he also knew that you know during this time period with this specific administration that it just wasn't going to work out so the fact that you know he did leave that door open it was very graceful very diplomatic honestly like i think that that is just looking at it from a security perspective i think that that is honestly one of like the saving grace moments of like with like the Japan, like US alliance throughout those four years during the Trump administration, just because, you know, we are a non-biased podcast. We try our best to be non-biased, but I do think that we can agree that the Trump administration for alliances and for foreign policy in general was not necessarily the most constructive administration that we've had as of 
you know, the modern era. So I think that Japan doing that was really, it, it, Erica, I will take your word for that. That was an iconic moment. That was an iconic moment. Shinzo Abe, he is an icon for that because he was extremely graceful and he knew how to be a good diplomat and a good leader. Yeah, we definitely won't get into our opinions on the previous administration, <laughs> but I will I will say my comment is that it was definitely run different than any other administrations. Absolutely. And I will not be elaborating further. You will not get any more out of me from <laughs> that's that. Like a, that's like an after hours for the pod. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like once like once like we start like our Patreon where we have like, you know, more of like our opinion base, like we'll have that there. We'll have that there. <laughs> yes. Yes. But I'm so excited for the next part of the source. It's towards the end. And guys, all the hot girls, when I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, Hunter is going to be so tickled pink. And he was out doing things. He was too busy for me at the moment. I was texting him and he didn't respond <laughs> to me saying this. But I'm pretty sure I was I like asleep or something. <laughs> yeah, you were doing something. And I texted you. I was like, oh my God, you'll never believe what they mentioned in the source. You're going to be so happy. He's like, sounds good. I mean, he didn't understand the full gravity, but it's okay. To be I'm going to be nice. To be fair, I was moving into like a whole new place this last week and just like trying to get everything done. It was <laughs> That's no excuse, but I'm going to be a class act like our subject today. And I diplomat. will allow you to read this next part. Okay. So another part that, you know, our source touches on that Goodman really goes into talk about is how... Abe really left his legacy in the global economic rulemaking and kind of norm setting. And so Goodman goes on to say that in 2015, Abe announced a new, quote, partnership for quality infrastructure, end quote, featuring high standards for labor, environment, and debt sustainability and infrastructure. So if y'all can't tell where we're going with this one, <laughs> we're bringing it back to the good old BRI, our favorite segment, personally, my favorite segment. And bring it back to the good old BRI, because honestly, nothing in politics goes these days without having some form of connection to the BRI. I don't care how far away you try and get, it is somehow connected. It's like the six degrees of separation. Like the BRI is truly connected to everything at this point. Like there's always something. That something. is Hunter's opinion. I think that's him wanting to see the BRI and everything. I think that that's literally like, you know, based off of my specialization and based off of my expert opinion, I truly, I will go that far to say that. In my expert opinion, there are six degrees of separation to the BRI at this point in time in 2022, that there's always something that is somehow connected, whether it's a supply chain, whether it's an investment, whether it's infrastructure, somehow it is related somehow. But I digress. So anyways, this is basically, obviously kind of like, you know, like Goodman says that it's a really not too subtle response, which I mean, yeah, I mean, when you say all those things, you're like, yeah, we're going to do high standards for labor, the environment, and then debt sustainability and infrastructure. Meanwhile, you're always having U.S. officials talking about how it's a debt trap. You're talking about how the infrastructure is poorly handled, that needs better standards. And so Japan's like, you know what? okay, we ball, we're going to go do our own. And so pretty much this was this giant thing. And so Goodman talks about in 2019 as host of the G20 summit, it was in Osaka. So Abe's over here hosting. He really won the endorsement. And it was also including by China and other large emerging markets of a set of, quote, 
quality infrastructure principles to govern trillions of dollars of investment. And this was going to roads, hospitals, digital infrastructure, all of those things that we always talk about within the BRI, whether that's just conventional infrastructure, whether that's, you know, internet, things like that, of where even if it's not traditional, just roads and bridges, it's still seen as infrastructure. So it can still be ports, it can be internet, it can be all those types of things, especially health coming up with the pandemic. I mean, this was in 2019, so I don't really think that they were like anticipating a global pandemic coming on, but still just one of those things of where, you know, it has the ability to evolve as well. Yes. And our last piece that Goodman talks about is the impacts that was made in data governance from Shinzo Abe. Now, with the global economy becoming increasingly digitized, he says, Goodman, Goodman saying this, just to clarify, you know, massive amounts of data are created every minute, which I'm sure we all are kind of aware of. Like there's cookies in every single website. You can't go on any single website without getting that little notification that you have to X out. Do you so want you to can... turn your cookies on? Do you accept or reject? What one is it? Do you accept like, the cookies, reject the cookies? Why are they called cookies? Like cookies imply good things. Anyways. Uh, we are so... clearly not STEM people, but if there is a STEM person, please just DM us. Like we're just curious. I mean, I know yeah. that we could go and Google this, but this is one of those things where like tech is just beyond us. We're just not, we need you to explain it the way that we explain this podcast to y'all. Please explain in a similar fashion to what cookies are. Yes, please. I, I want to know. I, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing where it's like, is it called mm -hmm. cookies because it leaves crumbs of data or did the crumbs come from the term cookies? Because cookies like, have cookie crumbs. Cookie. Like, are you yeah. a cookie? Are you yes. eating crumbs or what is it? Yeah, we have, we have a lot of questions. We have a lot of <laughs> But yeah, basically the internet is a lawless land and mm -hmm. even our laws in the United States and all over the world struggle to catch up to the realities of how fast our world is advancing especially mm -hmm. technologically like it's just like social media like the whole everything is just at a way advanced speed so naturally we're a little behind in regards to international data governance mm -hmm. so with all that data being created goodman goes on to talk about how yet there's like no internationally agreed rules on privacy security and flows of all of this massive massive amounts of data which is mm -hmm. kind of scary if you think about it. Absolutely it's, terrifying. Yeah, it's like, wait, there's nothing in any international law talking about, like, I mean, I know I know it's kind of new, but like the internet's been around for a while. But like, anyways. It's been here for a quick second. So like there should be something. Whether yeah. it's like, whether you're like structured under like an IP agreement, like intellectual property, like there has, like there should be something there to help do this, but it, yes. no. <laughs> well, Shinzo Abe was like, I want to fix this. So like, Yo, while I got this. Yeah, so Goodman talks about how while Abe was speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos in January 2019, Abe proposed the concept of, quote, data-free flow with trust, also known as DFFT, as an organizing principle for global rulemaking in this area. And again, at that summit, he won, Abe won G20 endorsement of the concept, and the current Kashida administration is reportedly planning to make realization of the DFFT rules and norms a priority for Japan's G7 host year in 2023. We'll have to just wait and see, guys. We We're will have, have to, to wait, wait and, and see. see. I don't know. I feel like how we, many times? I feel Hunter? Like we almost haven't said that in like an episode as of lately. Like I feel no, like we said like... it. We did say it last episode. I do recall. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But it was the I first feel like time. Less. Yeah, no, definitely a lot less. Uh, and that was the first time in a while. But like, honestly, Hunter, how many times? I, I want you to answer this sincerely. 
how many times have we been reporting on something and literally every single thing that hasn't yet been accomplished, they say we're making it a priority or like insert random year. Like how many times? At least like out of whenever we've said, we'll have to wait and see. I think that it's been at least 90% of those instances that it's always a giant priority, but then it just doesn't get talked about a whole lot after that. You're like, you like, you know, we're over here, Erica and I, hot girls scrounging around the internet, trying to find updates for things. Like, I think one of the only updates that we've had so far is on the hippos. The hippos from one of our first episodes on invasive species. And we had an update with the hippos. Otherwise, like, there hasn't been a whole lot of updates. I mean, like, there was the update on Danny Fenster, too. But that was also just one of those things of where that, you know, he's a person. He's not a policy decision. So things like that of where it's like, okay, like, logistically, like, this court case for the hippos, it has to move through. Logistically, like, this human as a, you know, a captured prisoner of another country, basically, something has to be resolved with that. But policy, policy can just keep on going forever. So I would, in my honest opinion, I think that it's been at least 90% of the times that we said, we'll wait and see. They're like, yeah, it's going to be a priority. Yeah. (laughs) I think we had an update on the Ukraine Russia thing too. We did an update episode, but that was like more of an ongoing crisis that is still still ongoing ongoing. so So, of course there's going to be more to update on that but it's like it wasn't like a finalized update it was kind of like a status update like we didn't get any resolution out of it which is what you want when you do an update Mm -hmm. it was not a policy decision that was like cool it got passed and now it's a thing it's a okay more horrible things are still happening during this conflict it was like hey ukraine and russia might go to war russia might invade ukraine update Mm -hmm. they did honestly i think at this point we might have to have Professor Kubitschak on for another update episode because it has been a hot <laughs> minute. So actually, you know, I'll talk to you about that later. But in this episode, we'll move on to our next source, which so while we just gave you a source kind of really promoting Shinzo Abe's legacy, this next source is kind of like, hey, there were some bad things about the dude. So us being the hot girls that we are, wanting to unbiased give a, hot girls, unbiased hot girls, wanting to give a non-biased opinion over here. So we will also be going through this and kind of talking about where this source is really saying that Shinzo Abe was really lacking in his leadership and as an official. Yeah. So let's get into it. It is an opinion commentary piece from Jeff Kingston, but it's at The Guardian, which, as you know, we love The Guardian Mm -hmm. as a source. So it starts off with Kingston talking about just the Japanese media coverage has been, you know, obsessing over Mm -hmm this over this assassination which like we we talked about that it's a thing that they do but also i think when people get assassinated they kind of become almost angelicized so kingston talks about how they reframing they reframe the legacy of a man who left office in 2020 under the shadow of scandals with low public support because i mean when people die especially assassinations like very publicly very broadly no one wants Mm -hmm. to speak ill of the dead you know, think about JFK, yeah. like that, that whole presidency was like, I've learned a lot about his presidency. And I'm like, how did none of this get talked about? Because nobody wants to remember JFK that way after what happened to him. Yeah, you're like, so, no, like the guy literally like gave his life for the country, basically. Like he died because of his leadership position. Like if he was just a normal citizen, like JFK would not have been assassinated. So that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you know, you really want to like take a step away from that and not really, you know, speak ill at that point. But there are, as leaders and as government officials, like there are policies that 
you know, you can say just were not good policies. They were not good stances, even if that person has had this horribly tragic event occur. Yeah. And it, it just goes also to say what your end goals are. So for example, we talked about in the previous source, how Abe wanted to change the pacifist post-war constitution that Japan had. He wanted to increase Japanese defense spending. But what does that entail? That entails Mm -hmm. more money to the military, which there is always going to be a lot of people who are against that because why, like, why do you need such a big military? You know, are you planning for a war? Like what's, what's going on with, you know what I mean? So yeah, I mean, like we see it in the U S all the time. It's just like, Oh, okay. Well, all this money goes to the defense budget. And it's like, okay, well, clearly that's going to, you know, rock some boats around here. People aren't going to enjoy that. People are not going to want money to be taken away from diplomacy, from education, from healthcare, from social services, things like that. Like people, once people are accustomed to a specific you know, set of standards, especially for social services, and then you take away those public goods, people are not going to be very pleased about it, especially when they're not seeing to where it's going, which the military, a lot of times, you know, you're not fully seeing where your money's going. There's a lot of things that, you know, are, are just not on the books and things the way they're purchased under very vague constraints. There's shell companies involved, things like that. So, I mean, it's one of those things of where people, it just, it inspires a really visceral kind of reaction one way or the other. Yeah. And their constitution is that way for a reason, which we will touch on a little bit in the source, Mm -hmm. but Abe was a powerful, according to Kingston, this is again, the opinion commentary piece. Abe was powerful advocate of increasing Japan's defense spending. He wanted to do 2% of GDP, which, Mm -hmm. and he also was in a big critic of China and Russia and a supporter of Taiwan, which y'all remember our Taiwan episode, you just the know drama. China the did not like that. Um, no, yeah. I mean, China flipped when, you know, Donald Trump accepted a phone call from the Taiwanese president. So, yeah, absolutely not good, especially when you're like next door neighbors. You're literally next door neighbors. Like they fight over, I mean, China and Japan, they fight over islands. They fought over chains. the Olympics. They, yeah, they literally. I mean, just like, no, 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 we got to do it first. Like, yeah, it's, I mean. Mm-mm. So when you already have this contentious relationship and then you're saying something like that, it's like, oh, oh, I don't know. Yeah. And then so this is what Abe said to, okay, guys, this is crazy. And again, this is a quote from the Kings from Jeff Kingston. So he said about Abe boldly claiming last December that Beijing should have no doubts about Japan's response if China pursued military action against Taiwan, which like. I mean, that's like what you're you're saying it without saying you're saying the quiet part out loud. I know it was like, like, there's no that's it's a new it's the evolving strategy of where strategic ambiguity is quickly leaving this whole debate around Taiwan, which, you know, strategic ambiguity, it's I guess just to break it down is a form of military deterrence of where countries are not going to say specifically what they're going to do because they just want you to be scared. So it's kind of like when your mom counts down from three, you're not 100% sure what she's going to do. Like you think you know what she's going to do and what she's going to say, what's going to happen when she counts down from three. But it, it, I mean, you're not 100% sure. She didn't say exactly what she's going to do. She's just like, hey, I'm going to count now. And all of a sudden you just hear the counting. You're like, okay. Like as a child, you're like terrified. Yeah, she's got the the wooden spatula or the for my the mom ch- the chancla. The chancla. <laughs> in hand. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah, you're... it was 
Yeah. It was a pretty bold statement. I would agree with Kingston in that. It's a very bold, bold statement. Mm-hmm. And it definitely ruffled some feathers, you could say. It, it yeah. definitely internationally ruffled China's feathers specifically. Yeah, because I mean, the US and Japan have a military alliance. So if Japan's <laughs> in the fight, then that inherently drags the US into the fight. So Japan's like, you know what? I'm gonna make the decision for them. This is what I'm gonna say. And so Shinzo Abe was like, yo, don't worry, America, I got this one. I'll say it for you. It's like when your drunk friend like speaks up at the bar and you're like, shut up. No, like we're going to get beat up right now if you go and start saying stuff to that guy. Like, absolutely not. You're horrified. You're like, shut up. No, it's but- more like when the passenger in your car, like you get pulled over and the passenger starts talking back to the cop because like, you're like, oh yeah, what are they going to get in trouble? I'm the driver. Like I've got like, United States has the most military. Like they're going to be more impacted than Japan is. Yeah, it's like, shut up, stop talking, like, stop talking, like, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, my taillight's gonna be out, all of a sudden, my license plate light is gonna be out, or, like, something, there's just, this cop's gonna find something, so it's like, shut up, but, yeah, so- The United States was, like, shocked Pikachu face. Yeah, like, we just, we can't stress that enough of, like, what this really meant, so, (laughs) little crazy, little crazy. Yeah. So Hunter, if you want to talk about what else Abe did for security, my, you're the security super fan after all. I got you. I mean, Hey, getting a whole degree in it. So here I am. So going along with the Kingston piece. So he talks a bit more about how Abe transformed Japan's security posture overall. So essentially what Abe did, he, you know, he formed a national security council. And so this is something that Japan didn't necessarily have. So Abe did this, and this already fundamentally changed the game over there. He also was talking about, Kingston also goes on to allude how Abe was embracing new defense guidelines with the U.S. and also just passing major security legislation. And it essentially is kind of saying, hey, Japan can do a lot more with the U.S. This is, we're just going to, we're going to up our game here. The security posture, we're standing up now. We're not sitting down anymore. We are standing up. And so, but in the support was, of the U.S., yeah, just, yeah, yeah, like you can do whatever you want, but only if you're supporting the United States, actually. Yeah, because you know Japan has this history of where it's like, oh, you know, we don't want to go out there looking like we're, you know, just gonna go back to World War II again, you know. So it's kind of like Germany, where like Germany never wants to make like that first move or anything. So they're like, no, 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 like we'll be in support of this stuff, but we promise we're not gonna make the first move. And so Japan's kind of in a similar, you know, standpoint of where they're like, hey, like we're not gonna make the first move, but like. If our friend does, then absolutely, I'm going to be there. I'm going to, you know, we're scrapping. And so Kingston goes on to say that this legislation, it enabled Japan's prime ministers to sidestep the constitutional constraints on its military forces. And this was all a part of Article 9 in the 1947 Peace Constitution, which was written by none other than occupying U.S. forces. So I mean, it's like, it's kind of crazy that they're like, yeah, we're going to sidestep what the U.S. said back then because we're going to help the U.S. out now. So <laughs> that's one of those things that we're like, the security posture, yeah, Shinzo Abe changed. And, you know, some can be seen as, hey, we don't want a hawkish Japan. We saw how that happened, how it was before. We don't want to go back to that. So just kind of giving my own stance on it, you know, it, it does create that hawkish aspect to Japan, where Japan has traditionally been seen as peaceful, it rised, it had a great economy, but now you're seeing that Shinzo Abe is really, you know, repositioning Japan into a more security-wise ally. Yeah, well, you know, that constitution, 
coincidentally came right after World War II, which we all know what was happening back then. So it's no surprise that the United States was like, you know what? We're going to, we're going to do what happened in Germany. We're going to put a limit and then to come out years later and be like, okay, you're limited unless you're in support of us, then you're not limited. But other than that, like that, I They're feel like, that's throw such the a... punch as hard as you can at that point. <laughs> I feel like that's such a classic United States. Us, yeah. So, um, but this author, Kingston, also does talk about the abenomics, which we were talking about in the previous source. And again, describes it as, you know, not really noteworthy, didn't really cause anything. Although Kingston did mention this little sentence in there, and I thought it was kind of funny, especially in today's light, just the way he described it. And he called abenomics as more a little more than a branding strategy to generate buzz rather than a blueprint for economic revitalization which you know that will happen if you don't follow through on the policies that you put a stake in for example donald trump has a couple the wall that became Mm -hmm. a huge that is more so i would say it's similar to this except obviously it has nothing to do with economics but again, it's like a branding strategy. It's almost like it's on hats. It's on it's on tank tops. It's on flags. Like that is kind of a branding strategy more so than an actual immigration security measure, or at least that's what it is now because it never was achieved. And now Donald Trump's no longer in office. Yeah. So, I mean, that was one of those things that where Abenomics, it was depending on your economic stance and standpoint, it really, it was either a good thing and the ideology was there for it and it was pretty solid or it was seen as you know just super lackluster not truly solving the problems of japan's economy at that point yeah and actually according to our source uh kingston when running to head the conservative liberal democratic party last autumn the abe's own like party ally the current Mm -hmm. prime minister kishida literally called abenomics an abject failure like i was yeah. like his mentor like that's a harsh and i mean like when you're literally naming the policy and you know <laughs> like after like when the policy is named after you and your own allies within your political party are saying that it's a failure you know i mean that's at that rough. point yeah because at that point like this was like one of his big things this was one of his main issues that he really wanted to push as a prime minister and so if you're really pushing this this is one of your main issues and you don't really solve anything with it it kind of makes you a lackluster prime minister like what did you really do for the economy if people are saying that it's lackluster people are saying that it didn't achieve what it was meant to do so at that point yeah you know you weren't really this like great leader that we were just talking about when you were coming from our other source like at this point Shinzo Abe you know he could be seen respectfully as not very promising in the economic field. And that really is a big issue, especially when one of the biggest issues in Japan is its economy. It's one of the top largest economies in the world. So the fact that you're not able to solve an economic crisis for one of the top economies in the world, it just, it's not a good look for you. It's kind of like the Bush administration going out in 2008, right as soon as the financial crisis was hitting. It's not a good thing. President Obama still today is seen as a failure by some throughout his tenure based on how he reacted and performed during the 2008 financial crisis. So it's not just a uniquely Japanese thing. It's a 
world leader thing at this point. Of if you can't solve these crises occurring with this giant economy, are you really even that good of a leader, considering that that is one of the big things of your country and what it's known for? Well, you can't win them all. Mm-mm. You could say. <laughs> I'm like trying to hold on to the good things we talked about in the last source. I'm like, oh, those were nice. Mm-hmm. Also, your main point kind of failed, but like, yeah, you did these things. That's you cool. Didn't, you didn't achieve like your main goal, but you got some yeah. side mission. You got some side quests completed, so we're really happy about that one. Yeah. Well, let's. We talked about the policies covered by both of our opinion commentator sources. Now let's mm-hmm. talk about the scandals. You know, every high profile leader there's always has one. one in the closet. There is always one. Yeah. So. Erica, do you want to go on and tell us what Kingston is really referring to when he talks about the legacy of Shinzo Abe with allegations of cronyism and just an overall lack of transparency? Like, what is Kingston telling us? Yes. So he is saying that, you know, important and potentially embarrassing documents were reported to have been altered, hidden, and sometimes shredded, impeding accountability. No way no. Yeah, red flag. I mean, I I like how it says potentially embarrassing because it's like, what was on those? Yeah, we don't know. Like you, you hear things like, "Oh, it was was shredded," or you can't see it because of national security. But like embarrassing Mm -hmm. documents. Like, read me the receipts. I want to see. Yeah. So Abe's effort at labor market reform was a potential game changer, but after it was revealed that he used questionable data to make his case, he had to settle for very modest changes. Mm-hmm. Which, that is I mean, that will big, kill that's it that's a big no i mean here at hot girl briefing we try and vet all of our sources to the best of our abilities we try and make sure that they are still accessible sources to you that's why we don't use strictly journal articles so i mean if we were only using super shady sources obviously we're not going to be seen as very credible let alone a world leader like red flag red flag yes and one of the other allegations was the subject of Abe's denialism and downplaying of Japan's historic misdeeds, which Japan is not alone in that. So many superpowers do that. So like, yeah. we, like we're like we all guilty of this at this point. Like every country, mm-hmm. maybe not every country, but many, many powerful countries. Most countries are, are pretty revisionist in that sense of like, what are you talking about? No, we're yeah. not going to mention that in the textbooks and stuff. Like a, in a speech, oh no, I'm not mentioning that at all. And it's like, sometimes it's important to really recognize like, yay, we had some failings on our part before and we're really trying to make up for them but yeah sorry, but America. i mean i i get the re the rewriting of history i mean it's not good but also just kind of like the de- denialism the allegations of it really not a good look especially regarding the quote comfort women which i i'm sure some of y'all have heard of it before i know me and hunter have but yeah so just due to the rating of our podcast we're not going to go too in depth into it but it does deal with vast, vast human rights abuses and an overall extremely uncomfortable topic for some. So we won't go too far into detail with that besides just mentioning it here, just because it was mentioned in the source and it is extremely important to understand when looking at Shinzo Abe's legacy. But if you do want more information on that, please feel free to go and check out some sourcing on that. We can provide that on our website for y'all of a good educational link for that. Yeah, so it is definitely look it up on your own time. 
this, like Hunter said, human rights abuses, but it is a very contentious point for the legacy of Shinzo Abe. Just again, you know, human rights abuses, which of course will be available in our source to read about more. But this really upset people, especially the ones that had suffered from Japan's wartime and colonial exploits. So it's hard to keep people accountable when they're not going to own up to their actions. Many, like the United States has this problem as well. Other, many other powerful players have this exact problem of denying the reconciliation and cooperation with those that have been hurt. I mean, if y'all have watched Avatar Last Airbender, that is literally an homage to how imperial Japan was. Like Japan is the fire nation in Avatar The Last Airbender. If you haven't watched it, you need to go watch it. So... Absolutely. You need to go and watch it. Erica and I, it is one of our favorite series. Honestly, I think that it gives a really good foundational understanding for security, for human rights, for development, for all of the different components of international relations. We know that it's a child's cartoon. It's an anime. It's from the early two. It's from but I think it's the mid 2000s, I want to say. No, it was early 2000s. Okay, so early 2000s. So we know that it's from a hot second ago, but it really does touch so much on a very like, you know, downplayed version of international relations while still touching on heavy subjects. But it's one of those things where it really is a great foundational understanding of international relations if you're able to pull that from the entertainment section of that television show but eric and i are giant supporters of it if you can't tell yeah it's on netflix so go watch it but like even in the show zuko couldn't just like say oh you know i know that the fire nation like totally invaded you and that was that happened but you need to kind of get over it because it's now and we're all at peace so just forget about it that that's basically kind of what Kingston is saying happened in Japan. Of course, again, this is an opinion. This is a commentary with all, with all speculation or not speculation with all. Well, what I'm trying to say, sorry, is, and I cannot, the words are just not coming on the tip of my tongue. And I'm blaming last week for that. But (laughs) when analyzing legacies of people, there is no, like, it's harder to say like facts on the way people feel, especially the way things are perceived by nations. So Mm -hmm. that is again, why we kind of went with this commentary opinion. But yeah, definitely was very contentious, something Abe left behind. And again, despite, and Kingston goes on to say that despite of how big of a legacy Abe leaves, which every, like the amount of tributes on social media, like Mm -hmm. every, every leader was talking about it. And despite his enormous stature and power, according to Kingston, Abe left office without making a lot of headway on Japan's challenges, which he describes as Kingston describes as the demographic time bomb of a rapidly aging society, which we talked about earlier and it's talked about all the time because it is such a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And critics of Abe, such as Tobias Harris, accused Abe of squandering political capital. And this is a quote, squandering political capital on constitutional revision while ignoring the climate crisis, which, like we said, he was really, really focused on that increasing defense spending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where as a leader, you can only focus on so many different things at once. But, you know, climate, it, it's it's one of the biggest crises in our modern time. It's been one of the biggest crises. It's going to continue to be one of the biggest crises. We are a generation of Gen Zers that are going to have to live with the fallout effects of what 
was going on 10 years ago, still 30, 40, 50 years down the road. So it's one of those points of, yeah, you need to take this one seriously. And so when you're having opponents and critics saying that you're not taking that seriously, especially when, I mean, one of the biggest climate change multilateral agreements was the Kyoto Protocol. You know, it was in Japan. So Japan used to be a for, at the forefront of this whole debate. And then you're seeing that it's not necessarily being as prominent when you're seeing that it's not necessarily being seen as prominent in the modern times of Shinzo Abe, it, it really is, it, it's a letdown to say the least about it, that this leader who's really championing these multilateral agreements, really focusing on diplomacy, increasing their foreign presence of the country and not focusing on climate change is one of the world's biggest factors of you know, that could lead to the most cooperation throughout the world because every single country is impacted by it. No matter how small, no matter how big the country is, no matter how many resources they have, no matter how little resources they have, every country is going to be impacted by climate change. And that is one thing that really produces a lot of space within these international institutions for countries and actors to come together. And so the fact that Shinzo Abe did not really, you know, kind of capitalize on that I can absolutely see why Tobias Harris would accuse Abe of squandering political capital, because that does seem like a waste of stuff at that point of where you're squandering it on these policies that aren't really benefiting anyone. They're not really accomplishing anything. It's a lot of defense stuff where people aren't really seeing those gains being made. And then it's not going towards the environment where Japan really, if they wanted to, I believe, could have been a great leader in that capacity. Yeah. And they also need to, like, it is detrimental for them not to be thinking about climate change. They're going to be one of the first ones to go. They're As literally surrounded by water. Nation. Yeah. They're literally like, an island nation. Like they're composed of islands. So like, it at least the United States for Japan to not really be on board with, you know, really pushing for like very rigorous climate change initiatives. Yeah. Like at least the United States has like the excuse of having the Midwest. They're like, oh yeah, Michigan and Florida will be gone. Like maybe California, but like they have yeah. like so much land in the middle. Japan does not have that space. They do mm -hmm. not. They should be like leading the charge. They should be the forefront of it. And so you're, I absolutely agree that I think it's totally, I think it's a viable critique of Abe's legacy from Tobias because mm -hmm. Japan's Japan should be worried more than any of us. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, now that we're kind of in the comment portion and our personal opinion portion of the episode, after going through both sides, for me, it really does seem like, you know, Shinzo Abe, really a great leader as a leader in foreign policy, minus the climate change issues and minus, you know, his denial of events that have taken place and kind of trying to revise history. But in terms of being able to have a collaborative leader like Shinzo Abe, I do think is so important, especially in today's world where you're seeing sides just become increasingly polarized. It really is important to have in a leader. That's a, such a great quality that we can't overlook at all. I mean, we saw how detrimental not having a cooperative leader is within the U.S. office. I mean, we are seeing French President Macron call NATO brain dead while it's at under the charge of, you know, the Trump administration. So you're seeing that 
with different administrations, it really is important to have such a collaborative leader, especially as the world becomes increasingly globalized. And Shinzo Abe, he was able to do that for some stuff. He was able to do that for saving the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He was able to do that while the U.S. really backed out and said, hey, we're going to go just do our own thing. Make it work on your own. We don't care if you if, if it floats or sinks. We don't care. And Japan was like, hey, yo, we got this. Shinzo Abe was like, I got this. So I think that's really important of a leader. But I do see that, you know, he also did come with a lot of downfalls and a lot of political baggage that I don't think should be overlooked just because he was a good collaborative leader in the foreign policy sphere. I don't think they're overlooked personally. I think they're just forgotten. So Mm -hmm. my whole opinion on this whole situation and not just Shinzo Abe is it is so fascinating to me how when people die and try when well-known famous people die in tragic deaths they kind of become like immortalized as Mm -hmm. cultural icons and it doesn't just happen in the political sphere what of course it does though but also like in entertainment like for example selena well selena marilyn monroe all of these like very famous groundbreaking in what they were doing i will Mm -hmm. i will give them that but like they died young tragic deaths and they get immortalized as culture icon and i i just think that i'm curious to see how future like writings will portray abe i think right now there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork and saying hey don't forget about this Mm -hmm. and it's easy not to forget about this when you are currently living in the lifetime that he was in but in 50 to 100 years which who knows where the planet will be at that point with climate change, climate change. But yeah. I would be very curious to see how his history would be written. And then, and that's kind of all my opinion on it. It just, it's a very interesting thing that always seems to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I will say, and to back that up of him becoming a, a immortalized cultural icon, like it's already starting because the elections for the upper house of Japan's parliament were two days after that on Sunday, July 10th, which like, Weird to me that they have a election on Sunday. I don't know. I'm so used to United States having it on Tuesday. It never I mean, occurred it makes to me. Makes sense if you can like you know because most people yeah. have a Sunday off, so it makes sense to have voting that day where everyone you know you actually it don't does. have to worry about childcare and taking you know taking a day off of work to go and vote and stuff. That you know it, you would think functioning does. democracies, it would make so much sense, but clearly that's clearly it's a yeah. loss on some people. That's a little aside. I was just like interesting. I'm like on a Sunday, but anyways, it gave Abe's. Liberal Democratic Party, a landslide victory because turnout was boosted by the shock assassination. So Kashida now has all the votes he needs to increase the defense spending and maybe even go ahead with revising the constitution that Abe had always wanted because that's what happens when people get assassinated in front of an audience like that is so shocking. Yeah, tragic events have the ability to really shape policy. I mean, we saw that even domestically within the U.S. of, look at September 9-11. Okay, there wasn't a whole lot to go off of with evidence of weapons of mass destruction, but here was the U.S. Hey, we're going to a war. Well, what proof do you have? Well, not a whole lot, but we're going to do it because (laughs) this is what we're doing. So, I mean, it's like you see that with, you know, as big of an event as that. Yeah, they passed the Patriot Act with that. Like, there's no way that would have ever gotten through in the land of the free without 9-11 had, like, not just happened. 
I would have never gotten through. And so, I mean, Shinzo Abe, while I'm not going to say that this event was as large as 9-11 in terms of the international system, it still is enough of a shock. It's a giant shock. I mean, we were just talking about it in our gun control episode of where Japan had a very small number relative to small number relative to the U.S. of gun deaths in their country. And there were mass protests about it. And, and I mean, I think that I want to say that the number was what, around 20, Erica? I believe that it was around 20 deaths for the whole year for gun yeah. deaths, which like in America- it was I mean, super low. In America, that's unheard of, you know? That's like, like hourly. Yeah, I mean, that's like one of those statistics of where like America, that would almost be a good thing if America could get down to that number as horrible as that sounds. And, you know, not making light of that at all, but it's just so- you can't Americans can't even conceive that of only having 20 gun deaths a year. So the fact that you're seeing Japan and Japanese citizens protesting in mass over that, I think that this is one of those events that it would have the ability to really be able to, you know, have the support, have the votes to really revise Japan's constitution because it is such a state of shock with everyone there. Yeah, but. We will just have to wait and see. Here it goes again. We have to wait and see because those elections just happened. The assassination is still fresh in the minds of Japan and all just the entire nation. And of course, our hearts go out to Shinzo Abe's family Mm -hmm. and, you know, all of his friends because it it is a tragedy. Well, like you said, Hunter, it's not as internationally significant as significant yeah significant as 9-11 it is still a huge tragedy Mm -hmm. and a great life lost absolutely i mean a public servant like shinzo abe who really did have that collaborative experience with being able to really push the world further together and really bring partners to the table that you otherwise wouldn't normally be able to see all together at his table i think that that really does shed a lot of light on his legacy and what he leaves behind so yeah, I mean, and no one deserves, no one deserves that. No one, it, even if he has the controversy that we talked about, like no yeah. one deserves to go out that way. So we will wrap up that episode, this episode with that, just wishing well to all those affected by mm-hmm. this. And um, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I feel like it was a little different than we normally do. Yeah, I'd say it's a little different. And I mean, obviously, you know, this is just one large current event that we were talking about. And you know, it has a lot of relations to other current events and events that were in the recent past. But if you guys kind of like the setup of this episode, because we did set it up a little bit differently, please feel free to let us know too, just because we do know that, yeah, it was set up a little bit differently. We had a bit more controversy in there. We had a bit more of opinion base at the end than what we're used to. So if you guys are liking that, please feel free to reach out and let us know too. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, Hunter. We will see you guys next week on the next episode of Hot Girl Briefing. Follow us on Instagram. Yes. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Check out the website. But with that, like Erica said, thank you guys all so much for tuning in and we will see y'all next week. Bye. Bye.